0: Welcome to Storytime for the Apocalypse in miniature podcast form. Here, we remember the comfort of bedtime stories in childhood, of library stories and campfire stories that have soothed listeners and readers for the longest time. The word apocalypse means to uncover by removing a veil. That can mean readings about discovery, revelation, transformation. Or things exploding, worlds ending, and sharks caught up in out-of-control tornadoes. There's room for all of that here. In life's endless complexity, storytime is a brief rest in the safety and the impetus that beautiful words provide. This show is created on Tongva land. We're about to listen to Eternal Student Alicia Zacklin who read at Storytime in May of 2020. Alicia is a self-proclaimed people lover and logic nerd who has carved out a global career in technology consulting whilst nurturing her deep love of education, books, and reading. She's drawn to complexity like it's a magnet, and her commitment to problem-solving, learning, and teaching has fueled more than a decade of high-challenge projects and successes. Alicia is with us from Las Vegas and is reading from one of her many favorite books.
1: Thank you, Tilly. I appreciate it. This is actually an introduction that was written at the beginning um, of the second printing of this book. Uh, And I hope you'll understand as I'm reading it why, why I chose it. It's one of my favorite pieces of writing. It is 13 years since I finished writing this book, reading it over to correct misprints in the original edition has not been exactly a comfortable task. The memory of the novel I wanted to write has not faded enough yet to make it easy to read the novel I did write. The memory of the spring of 1919 has not faded enough. Any spring is a time of overturn, but then Lenin was alive. The Seattle general strike had seen the beginning of the flood instead of the beginning of the ebb. Americans in Paris were groggy with theater and painting and music. Picasso was to rebuild the eye. Stravinsky was cramming the Russian steps into our ears. Currents of energy seemed breaking out everywhere as young guys climbed out of their uniforms. Imperial America was all shiny with the new idea of Ritz. In every direction, the countries of the world stretched out starving and angry, ready for anything turbulent and new. Whenever you went to the movies, you saw Charlie Chaplin. The memory of the spring of 1919 has not faded enough yet to make the spring of 1932 any easier. It wasn't that today was any finer than it is now. It's perhaps that tomorrow seemed faster. Everybody knows that growing up is the process of pinching off the buds of tomorrow. Most of us who were youngsters that spring have made our beds and lain in them. You wake up one morning and find that what was to have been a springboard into reality is a profession. The organization of your life that was to be an instrument to make you see more and clearer turns out to be blinders made according to predestined patterns. The boy who thought he was going to be a tramp turns out a nearsighted, middle-class intellectual. Or a tramp. It's bad either way. Professional deformation set in. The free-swimming young oyster fastens to the rock and grows a shell. What it amounts to is this. Our beds have made us, and the cutest action we can take is sit up on the edge of them and look around and think they are our beds till we die. Well, you're a novelist. What of it? What are you doing it for? What excuse have you got for not being ashamed of yourself? Not that there's any reason, I suppose, for being ashamed of the trade of novelists. A novel is a commodity that fulfills a certain need. People need to buy daydreams like they need to buy ice cream or aspirin or gin. They even need to buy a pinch of intellectual catnip now and then to liven up their thoughts. A few drops of poetry to stimulate their feelings. All you need to feel good about your work is to turn out the best commodity you can. Play the luxury market and the hell with doubt. The trouble is that mass production involves a change in the commodities produced that hasn't been worked out yet. In the Middle Ages, the mere setting down of the written word was a marvel. Something of that marvel got into the word set down. In the Renaissance, the printing press suddenly opened up a continent more tremendous than America. 16th and 17th century writers are all on fire with it. Now we have linotype, automatic typesetting machines, phototype processes that plaster the world from end to end with print. Certainly 80% of the inhabitants of the United States must read a column of print a day if it's only in the tabloids in the Sears Roebuck catalog. Somehow, just as machine-made shoes aren't as good as handmade shoes, the enormous quantity produced has resulted in diminished power in books. We're not men enough to run the machines we've made. A machine's easy enough to run if you know what you want it to do, that's what it's made for. The perfection of the machinery of publication, I mean the presses, obviously small time boom finance has made a morass of the book trade, ought to be a tremendous stimulant to good work. But first the writer must sit up on the edge of his bed and decide exactly what he's cramming all these words into print for. The girlish romantic gush about self-expression that still finds the minds of newspaper critics and publishers' log-rollers emphatically won't do anymore. Making a living by selling daydreams, sensations, packages of mental itching powders is all right, but I think few men feel it much of a life for a healthy adult. You could make money by it, sure, but even without the collapse of capitalism, profit tends to be a worn-out motive, tending more and more to strangle on its own power and complexity. No producer. Even the producer of the shoddiest five and 10 cent store goods can do much about money anymore. The man who wants to play with the power of money has to go after it straight, without any other interest. Writing for money is as silly as writing for self-expression. The 19th century brought us up to believe in the dollar as an absolute, like the law of gravitation. History has riddled money value with a relativity more scary than Einstein's. The pulp writer of today writes for a meal ticket, not for money. What do you write for then? To convince people of something? That's preaching. It's part of the business of everybody who deals with words. Not to admit that is to play with a gun and then blubber that you didn't know it was loaded. But outside of preaching, I think there is such a thing as straight writing. A cabinet maker enjoys cutting a dovetail because he's a cabinet maker. Every type of work has its own vigor inherent in it. The mind of generation is its speech. A writer makes aspects of that speech enduring by putting them in print. He whittles at the words and phrases of today and makes of them forms to set the mind of tomorrow's generation. That's history. A writer who writes straight is the architect of history. What I'm trying to get out is the difference in kind between the works of James Joyce, say, and that of any current dispenser of daydreams. It's not that Joyce produces for the highbrow and the other for the lowbrow trade. It's that Joyce is working with speech straight and so dominating the machine of production while the daydreamer Artist is merely feeding the machine, like a girl in a sausage factory shoving hunks of meat into the hopper. Whoever can run the machine runs it for all of us. Working with speech straight is vigorous, absorbing, devastating, hopeless work. Work that no man need be ashamed of. Your answer that Joyce is esoteric, only read by a few literary snobs, a luxury product like limited editions, without influence on the mass of ordinary newspaper readers. Well, give him time. The power of writing is more likely to be exercised vertically through a century than horizontally over a year's sales. I don't mean either that Joyce is the only straight writer of our time, or that the influence of his powerful work hasn't already spread, diluted through other writers, into many a printed page of which the author never heard of Ulysses. None of this would need saying if we didn't happen to belong to a country in an epoch of peculiar confusion when the average man's susceptibility to print has first inflamed by the misty sentimentality of school and college English teachers who substitute good modern books for the classics, and then atrophied by the bawling of publishers' barkers over every new piece of rubbish dished up between boards. We write today for the first American generation not brought up on the Bible, and nothing as yet has taken its place as a literary discipline. These years of confusion, when everything has to be relabeled and catchwords lose their meaning from week to week, Maybe the reader's poison, but they are the writer's meat. Today, though the future may not seem so gaily colored or full of changing hopes as it was 13 years ago when I quit work on this novel, it should have been worked over so much more. We can at least meet events with our minds clear of some of the romantic garbage that kept us from doing clear work then. Those of us who have lived through have seen these years strip the bunting of the great illusions of our time. We must deal with the raw structure of history now. We must deal with it quick before it stamps us out.
0: I wanna ask you, Alicia, what reaction do you have when you hear the word apocalypse?
1: What comes to mind is, is is really based on what my grandparents went through during their lifetimes and what I know. It feels to me like every era people feel like the apocalypse is on them. I think that's our greatest theory. We're so, you know, conscious of our own mortality. And the reason I chose to read the piece that I read is because when I read it, um, it was right after my grandfather had died, my, my grandparents had finally started mm-hmm. to speak about the war. You know, and both sides of my family, my grandparents lived through that. My, great, uh, my grandmother um, on my dad's side, she would always only let us use two squares of toilet paper even in the 1980s, because she lived through the depression and the war, and you know it left a stamp on her. Um, and I was very aware of what a stamp it left on them. But on my material, maternal grandparents, they never spoke of the war until my grandfather was chronically ill, and I asked him to tell me about it. And when they told me those things, I thought to myself, I, I felt like such a jerk for forever complaining about anything, frankly. And then I thought, this will be perspective as I go through the rest of my life. And the first time I read this introduction by Dos Passos, I thought exactly the same thing. Imagine being at that moment, surviving World War One, post the Great Depression, not even knowing that World War Two looms upon you, you know, and um, The apocalyptic sense that we have right now dims in comparison to all of those major events. When I think about it, you know, imagine the bubonic plague to the uneducated masses, or, or whatever. And so, what comes to mind is, um, is that everybody in their, almost everybody, I believe, you know, has felt this way at some point in their life through every era and epoch of history. They were had a concept of apocalypse. They, they felt like that. And that brings me some kind of hope, you know, other generations survived and thrived and grew and time is measured in, in a much longer and, and by much longer stick than, than our lives. And so that's that's how I feel about it. And that's what I'm trying to hold on to now.
0: Alicia, thank you. And you've totally encapsulated the mission of this Storytime event, which is to find the threads of hope in what can be and what is an incredibly challenging time for our world. So thank you. And that, my friends, was your Storytime for the Apocalypse Minisoad. To experience this immersive storytelling event live, go to storytime4.net. Storytime for the Apocalypse is created by me, Tilly Hinton, and produced by Stephen Sean Trethaway. Until next time, may the comfort of storytelling hold you tight.